there's really nothing more beautiful or hopeful, at least to my eyes, than to see two people stand together in the chancel of a sanctuary, especially this beautiful sanctuary, decked out in their finest clothing with flowers up here for the occasion and family and friends beaming in the congregation to witness this event which is centered around making promises, vows to one another before God and these witnesses as we say in the ceremony. Almost all of the promises that a couple makes on this day are variations on the theme of covenant loyalty. Promises made before God and these witnesses to be loving and faithful spouse in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, as long as we both shall live. It's really nothing more beautiful than to see a couple make these promises to one another in this space. And if you look really closely, if you pay close attention to this moment in a wedding ceremony, you can catch a glimpse of that ancient garden in Eden, that garden where God placed that, those first spouses in paradise. It's all quite beautiful and hopeful and reminiscent of Eden but you know, once you think of Eden, you are compelled to remember another part of that ancient story. The presence of the tree that was forbidden. The tree whose fruit the first spouses end up eating from because they are told that it will make them like God. The love between two people. That, makes, that causes them to make that fateful decision to make those promises to one another is beautiful and vulnerable. Vulnerable to that most primordial of human propensities, the desire to be like God, the power of the human ego. Now, for me this morning in particular, it's tempting to look at this commandment and preach a really short sermon. I know that Anne said much the same uh, when she preached, and, and Mary Sellers, I'm sure, could say the same thing. I mean, these commandments are pretty straightforward, are they not? It's, it's tempting, kind of like the time that kid returned home from church and someone asked him, what did the preacher preach about? And he said, well, he preached about sin. And they said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, he was against it. And um, having been only back from Japan now for a few days and feeling a little bit of jet lag this morning, it's tempting to say about adultery, I'm against it. And I know that's going to be a popular position, no controversy at all, and we can all go home a little bit earlier than normal. But then again, that would betray everything we've been saying about these commandments to this point, that they are not in the end merely negative statements of restriction, but words of love, gifts, really, that open us out into a world of flourishing, a world of life as God intends for life to be. It's not about what God is against, 
but about what God is for, how God is working among us in mercy even now to bring us to life. That's the way the theologian Karl Barth put it way back in the, in the 30s. He viewed the commandments, and especially this one, in a particular kind of way. He said that marriage is, quote, a partnership in freedom. He went on to say it is not bondage. It is a bond in freedom, a tie that releases. And you know, in the book that we're reading from Eugenie Gamble, she describes this intention beautifully. God intends our relationships, she says, to be marked by fidelity, by safety, by mutuality, by trust, by generativity, free from manipulation, free from coercion or domination or demeaning or abuse. She goes on to say, you know, this intention is not possible in a relationship in an atmosphere of betrayal or porous boundaries or insincere commitment. This is God's intention. And through the ages, marriages have reflected the cultures in which they occur. But this fundamental intention remains as the, as the root of what it is we are doing. So yes, in ancient Judaism, marriage was often more an economic relationship than a a romantic one or a loving one, bound up in patriarchy for sure, the notion of ownership of the woman by her father first and then by her husband, that vestige of that remains with us in our modern marriages where so often the father brings the bride down the aisle, right, and does what gives her away, we used to say, to her husband, that ancient patriarchal vestige even so remains and adultery was often seen in that in that context as as damaging a man's property and yes adultery in that culture is closely aligned with issues of paternity and family blood purity and yes the thinking about it focused much more so in that time on the woman rather than the man and yes, the prescribed punishments for it, which are almost always doled out to the woman and not the man, were nothing short of brutal and unconscionable, really, to our modern ears. But here's the thing. None of those cultural trappings, most of which, thank God, are no longer in place in the West, should cause us to lose sight of that underlying intention. Jesus' teachings were often focused on moving beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law or the intention underlying the law. And we must do that with this particular commandment if we're to free it from all of that cultural baggage. In the Sermon on the Mount, which was part of the reading for today, the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is seen by most scholars as a reflection on the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Jesus is on the Mount, and he is interpreting, or reinterpreting, we might say, many of the commandments of the law. 
And he pushes us in his reinterpretation of that the act of adultery is rooted not so much in the act itself, but in the a posture of the heart which leads often to the act. The lustful look already begins to undercut marriage. Tom Long says that Jesus is speaking here not of psychological introspection, but of people's basic attitudes. The choices that we make about what we allow to take root in our imaginations to shape our thoughts, to govern our actions, to mold our relationships. He says, lust is an intention to break a sacred covenant poised just this side of action. Jesus breaks open then the legalisms and this and all the other commandments by forcing us to think about them beyond their prohibitions. The act of physical intimacy is not simply an activity. It is not something intended only for procreation, but it is a beautiful gift that, as Patrick Miller says, is a reflection of intimate and loyal relationship between two persons who share their life together as partners in an enduring relationship. Sexual intimacy is part of that loyalty, but is only the beginning of it. It is a coming to know that blossoms in countless other ways between two people in covenant. Adultery, then, is a breach of that intimate, knowing relationship. Now, I've had the privilege of working with couples prior to their marriage now since the late 80s. And since the late 80s, I have had a, a variation that's been revised many times over the years of something called the pre-marriage awareness inventory. Some of you in this room have taken that inventory if I've worked with you prior to your marriage. It's a set of multiple choice questions that the couple answer separately from one another, and that provides the basis for our conversations then uh, over the several weeks of the counseling. One of the questions says that sexual fidelity in marriage is A, absolutely important, B, very important, C, important, D, optional, and E, irrelevant. Now, I can tell you that since 1989, no couple that I have ever worked with has ever marked anything other than absolutely important. Not a single one. Because if they did, of course, we would be having a much different conversation at that point. I have never known a couple that went into their marriage with the intention of being unfaithful or even the idea that that was ever would be a possibility in their marriage. And yet that, that tree it was in the garden and it's still there. The one that elevates our ego above all else, that says our needs and desires are more important than all others, even those closest to us. 
we all know that life gets complicated and busy and pressures can build and build on a relationship and if not tended to couples can grow apart this is why as an aside the community is so important for especially for young couples they need we need one another to help us bear the burdens of life in community and that's unfortunately where the seeds for infidelity can often take root in the midst of those pressures. And if it happens, it's incredibly destructive. It's not life-giving, it's, it's not safe, it's, it's not mutually satisfying or ultimately satisfying. It's destructive and painful. It destroys families and lives. Breaking trust does just that. It breaks people, things, and hearts. I like the paraphrase of this commandment on the, children, on the bulletin board, the children's bulletin board in Wilson Hall, if you haven't seen it. It simply says, don't break your marriage. Don't break your marriage. And I'm with Eugenia Gamble when she quotes the advice that was given to her just don't do it. All hell will break loose if you do. All true. And even though this commandment pertains to married persons, obviously, the issue of fidelity and trust and covenant loyalty lies at the root of all the commandments. You've heard some excellent sermons over the last couple of weeks from Pastor Mary Sellers, Pastor Ann, that help us see the issues of honoring life givers and honoring life in the broad context of God's vision of love for our neighbor. To live in a society that values the inherent worth and dignity of the human person, of the human family, of human peace and prosperity this is God's intention, which is to say, again, is an intention of love and flourishing. The command to be trustworthy and faithful extends then into these other commandments. While we are not all married, we do exist, all of us, in relationships personally and collectively that depend on fidelity and trustworthiness. I know that marriages cannot survive very often um, if the partners do not trust one another. I'm not sure that democracies can survive if the citizens of that democracy do not ultimately trust one another. We are called in all of these different contexts to set aside the selfish desires of the moment for the sake of the whole. As Gamble says, when getting what we want when we want it is more important than those who might be harmed by our actions. That is not human flourishing. But it remains true that we cannot talk about this or any other commandment as in a Christian church without placing it in the still larger context of Christ's love and mercy. The tree in the garden still exercises its power over us. 
our egos and our appetites can lead us into destructive patterns. It is tempting for us to read these commandments and the historical context in which they were written as a word of destruction for us and judgment and wrath. But there are ample stories in both the Old and New Testaments that testify otherwise. And I wanted to lift up one today, one that we, I did not read this morning as a text, but perhaps there's none more appropriate for this particular commandment than the story from the Gospel of John of the woman being brought to him who had been caught in the act of adultery. You recall the story, a group of religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus and say to him, by law, she should be stoned. So here it is, the very commandment we've been discussing. This woman brought to Jesus, the scene is stark and poignant. There's no more clear-cut example of the violation of the commandment. And the leaders are correct. In that cultural context, the law did provide for her public execution in the most brutal way possible. The answers to so many of our questions about the commandments and our correct interpretation and application of them in the modern context hang in the balance. So what does Jesus do in this moment? If you remember, at first he does nothing, says nothing. He bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt, John says. One of the great mysteries of this text for me has always been what exactly was he writing? I like to think maybe it was, where is the man? After all, she was caught in the very act, we're told, but the man, where is he? Finally, though, Jesus speaks. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And note that he's not particular about which sin. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. There are many sins in the Old Testament, by the way, that had stoning as a penalty. Again, a reflection of the brutality of that cultural context. And Jesus has just with this comment leveled the field, brought into the picture the fact which is so easy for us to forget, especially when some poor soul is presented to us in the full throes of humiliation and failure and condemnation and judgment, we, it's easy for us to forget that there is none righteous, as Paul says, no, not one. And that the tree in the garden extends its influence on us all. And sure enough, the woman's accusers walk away one at a time. And for our purposes, the key moment in the text is when Jesus is left alone with her. All of her accusers gone, and he asks, where are, are your accusers? Is there no one left here to condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't diminish the seriousness of the situation, her violation, the seriousness of the sin, the way that that can break people. He knows how destructive it has already been for her and for her relationships. He wishes that not on no one. 
So now, bathed in his grace, she is free to go and do the no doubt hard work of reconciliation, of living into the flourishing that he intends for all. And it remains so for all of us. Bathed in the waters of baptism, we are the recipients of a grace that gives us the ability to walk as freely bound to God and one another. And that mercy is for all of us. So that moment when a couple looks into one another's eyes and makes promises, it remains beautiful and hopeful after all, not because of our inherent ability, but because of the God before whom we all stand, who in God's mercy gives us all we need to be worthy companions. Amen.